Well, just a few days ago on Wednesday morning, our daughter Abigail went in and had tube surgery. And this is something most of our kids, all of our kids except for Clara, has had done. So uh, we were kind of used to the routine. Uh, But uh, the doctor called, I think, the day before and gave the instructions doctors always give uh, in preparation for a surgery. And talking to Hannah, the doctor said, you know, Abigail, after a certain time, can't have anything to eat. After a certain time, can't have anything to drink. And all of these instructions, of course, were preparing Abigail for the tube surgery that she was going to have so she wouldn't have more ear infections. Now, Abigail is only one. And so those instructions really didn't mean anything to her. Not having anything to eat or not having anything to drink after a particular time, I mean, there was really no sense in trying to explain to our one-year-old daughter exactly what all of these instructions meant or, for that matter, what this surgery was going to do. So Abigail, although she didn't understand what was about to happen, the only thing she could really do was trust her mom. She could trust that Hannah had her best intentions in mind as Abigail was denied. She was not granted the food, the water that she desired. Her only option was to trust And as a parent, I've learned, and if you're a parent, I'm sure you have learned, that there are times when you simply have to ask your kids to trust you. You can't always explain everything that's about to happen. They may not understand everything that's about to happen, so you just have to ask them to trust you. And it's often that same thing in our relationship with God. I have found in my life, as I'm sure you have found in your life and your relationship with the Lord, that there are often things you don't understand. There are often things that I don't understand. All we can really do is lean back and trust him. I love the words of Corey Ten Boom who said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And that's the idea we're going to see as we take a look at John chapter 16, the end of John chapter 16 together this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to John chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 16 through 33, the second half of the chapter together this morning. Now, as you're turning to John 16, let me remind you of kind of where we're at. We're here in the upper room discourse, and Jesus is just hours away from being betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. And all along the way, in these final hours with his disciples, Jesus has been explaining to them what it is that's about to happen. But we're going to see this morning that once again, still, the disciples are thoroughly confused. They don't really understand what Jesus is saying. And so there in the midst of their confusion, Jesus is going to clarify for them just a little bit more what it is that's about to take place. And then number three on your outline, the final thing Jesus does in these closing moments with his disciples is he exhorts them to have courage. Even in their confusion, even in the unknown, they're to have courage. 
So again, open your Bible up to John chapter 16. You can grab your outline as well. We can see those three things listed there on your outline. The confusion of the disciples, the clarification that Jesus is going to bring, and finally the courage to which he will call them to live. John chapter 16, let's take a look first at number one on your outline, the confusion of the disciples. John chapter 16, let me read verses 16 through 18. Jesus says here to his disciples, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you'll not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. So you can see here the confusion in the disciples' minds, right? Uh, Jesus has been talking about uh, his death and his resurrection, his ascension. He's been telling his disciples that it's time for him to leave, that he's going to go to heaven in his uh, place in glory with God the Father. He's been telling his disciples this over and over again throughout the upper room discourse. But here we see the ongoing confusion of these disciples. And what I want you to see for now is... Here in the question of the disciples, as they're thoroughly confused about what Jesus has been talking about, there's really three aspects or three parts of their confusion that I want you to understand. I don't want you to be confused like the disciples are confused. So let's look and see at what is confusing the disciples. Look again at verse 17. The disciples said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? Number one, a little while and you will not see me. Number two, again a little while and you will see me. And number three, because I go to the Father. See, there's three things, three questions, you will, that the disciples are wrestling with. Three things that they don't understand. The first one is Jesus says, a little while and you will not see me. Here he's referring to his death. That in just a few short hours, he's going to be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and laid in a tomb. And there for a little while, the disciples will not see him. Number two, Jesus, his words that the disciples are confused about, he says, again a little while and you will see me. So number one, A little while you will not see me, that's his death. But here again a little while and you will see me. Here he's referring to, he's speaking to his resurrection. That after a little while, three days, they would see him again. And then the third statement the disciples are confused about, Jesus said, because I go to the Father. We talked about this several weeks ago. Jesus is talking about ultimately his ascension into heaven to him going back to his place of glory at the right hand of God the Father. So you and I understand what the disciples didn't understand. Jesus is ultimately talking about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. But the disciples here in this moment are thoroughly confused. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. So notice again there in verse 18, John tells us, so they were saying, or you could translate this as, they kept on saying. They kept on saying. What is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. I can picture in my mind the 
dialogue, the discourse going back and forth among the disciples of Jesus as they're listening to his words. They're kind of whispering into one another. Do you understand what he's saying? No, I don't understand what he's saying. Well, ask him. Why don't you figure out what he's saying? No, you ask him what he's saying, right? Like this back and forth going on among the disciples of trying to figure out what in the world is Jesus talking about a little while. The disciples are confused. They don't understand. And before you and I give them too hard of a time, let's be honest and let me ask you, are you ever confused by the Lord? Do you ever not really understand what he's saying or perhaps what he's allowing to happen in your life? I think for all of us, it's just part of what it is to be human. We, we wrestle with those questions of, God, I don't understand why you're allowing this, why you're doing this. God, what are you up to? Can you help me understand? Can you help me see just a little bit of what you're doing? One of the realities we see here in this passage and we see in our own life as well is that we often don't understand the Almighty. But even when we don't understand the Almighty, what we are expected to do is to trust the Almighty. Even in our confusion, even when we don't understand, we're still called to trust him. Now why? How can we trust him? Let's take a look at number two on your outline. Jesus begins to provide a little bit of clarification to the confusion of the disciples. But before we look at these verses, as Jesus begins to clarify, one of the things we'll see is he still doesn't fully disclose all the details. He doesn't just come outright and say, listen guys, wake up, I'm going to be nailed to a cross and laid in a tomb, I'm going to pay for the sins of the world, but in three days I'll rise again and you'll see me and then I'm going to ascend into heaven. One of the things we'll see is that even in these verses, Jesus uses a figurative language. He's clarifying, but he's not fully disclosing. But he's still expecting his disciples to trust him. So notice as we take a look at number two on your outline, John chapter 16, starting in verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? I love that Jesus here, knowing this dialogue that's taking place among the disciples, this wrestling with what in the world is Jesus talking about? Do you understand what he's saying? As Jesus hears his disciples and he knows that they're wrestling with this, he just kind of, he approaches them and he brings up the issue with them and he says, listen, uh, why are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and a little while? Here he is, hours from the cross, He probably had other things to think about, right? And yet notice Jesus' patience with his disciples, his compassion on them. Even here in this moment, hours from the cross, he's patient enough to keep teaching his disciples, to clarify there in the midst of their confusion. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you. That if Jesus, even here in this moment, just hours away from the cross, had enough patience and compassion on his disciples to stop and to address their confusion, don't you think that now, 2,000 years later, 
as he now sits in glory at the right hand of God the Father, don't you think he has compassion on you in your confusion, in your lack of understanding? I think one of the takeaways from this passage is that uh, we can ask him. We can go to him. We can tell him when we're confused. And starting in verse 20, Jesus now begins to clarify. To clarify the confusion that the disciples have about the words of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Here Jesus gets very specific about the feelings, the emotions that the disciples are going to be wrestling with here in just a little while. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve and your grief will be turned into joy. Jesus here is beginning a contrast that we're going to see throughout this passage between grief and joy. And he says to his disciples, listen, to start things out, you are going to lament. You are going to grieve over about what's, to, about, uh, what's about to happen. He says the world, and I think here he's referring to the fallen world, specifically to the religious leaders, they're going to rejoice over what's about to take place. But then Jesus makes an incredible promise. He says there to his disciples, your grief will be turned into joy. Your grief will be turned to the joy in just a little bit, in just a little while. Again, we know that he's talking about his death. And the thing that's going to transition their grief into joy will be the resurrection when they see him again. But the disciples don't understand that in this particular moment. And all Jesus tells them now is, listen, you're going to grieve. You're going to lament. But in just a little while, your grief is going to be turned into joy. And then in verses 21 and 22, he illustrates this. He illustrates this idea of grief and joy. And he says there in verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And so here in describing this grief and joy that the disciples will feel. Jesus uses an incredible illustration, that of a woman giving birth to a child. Andy Wildman, one of the wisest things this guy ever told me one time, this is very, very true. He said, if it depended upon men to have babies, the human race would have ended a long time ago. That's very true. Very wise. If it depended upon men to have babies, the human race would have ceased to exist a long time ago. Uh, the anguish that women go through, and keep in mind, this is in the first century Israel, long before the days of epidurals and hospitals, right? The anguish that women go through in having a baby, it's unimaginable. But then, in an amazing miracle, after going through that process, uh, many women want to have another baby. 
it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. And Jesus draws on this incredible example. And he says, listen, men, speaking to his disciples, the same thing will happen to you. You're going to have, you're going to be overcome with grief and pain. But that grief is going to be turned into joy. And once again, I want you to notice the difference. What is it that's going to take their grief and turn it into joy? He says, notice in verse 22, I will see you again, referring to his resurrection. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Starting in verse 23, we, Jesus continues this idea of joy and he wants the joy in his disciples to be made full. Let me read verses 23 through uh, 28 for you. Jesus says, in that day, referring to the day of his resurrection, he says, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And then notice verse 25. He says, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came from the Father and have got, come into the world. I am now leaving the world again and going to the Father. Here Jesus really repeats many things that he has said before in the Upper Room Discourse. There are several things I want you to notice here in these verses. Number one, notice Jesus says, I'm speaking to you in figurative language. He's not outright completely disclosing everything that's about to take place. He just tells them enough so that they can trust him. The second thing I want you to see here in these verses is, once again, Jesus says, and we've seen this multiple times now in the Upper Room Discourse, he says, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, I will give it, he will give it to you. And now, Multiple times throughout the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus has brought up this topic of prayer. And he has said, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. So what does Jesus mean here? I have a couple thoughts for you. Uh, First of all, in light of the fact that Jesus is saying this now multiple times, he's been talking about prayer multiple times here in the Upper Room Discourse. I love the quote of Charles Spurgeon, who said, we may be certain that whatever God has made prominent in his word, he intended it to be conspicuous in our lives. If he has said much about prayer, it is because he knows we have much need of it. And here, in his final hours with his, his disciples, Jesus on multiple occasions now has been talking about prayer because he knows that they, that we, need much of it. Speaking of prayer Uh, Last week, if you were here or watched online, I encouraged you to pick a word for the year. A word that it's your prayer that God would work in your heart and in your life over the course of 2023. And I made a deal with you last week that's still on the table. 
that if you email me your word or if you write it down and slip it to me, that I will pray for you over the course of 2023, that God would work that particular word into your life. And many of you have done that already, and I appreciate that, and um, I've prayed for you every day. Now, it's only been a week, but I've, I've, I've done it. Um, but I'll keep doing it. I'll keep praying for you. But this week, as I was praying through that list of the different words that some of you have sent to me that you want God to work in your heart and in your life over the course of 2023, one of the amazing things as I look at that list of words is nobody picked the word lottery. (laughs) Not a single person. Instead, the words that you picked were words like love and joy and patience and obedience and prayer And the reason I bring it up is because I think that's exactly what Jesus means when he says, if you ask for anything in my name. If you ask for things that are in line with his will, things like growing joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in your life, then those are the kinds of prayers that God will answer. He will work those things in your life. Those are the exact kind of prayers that God has in mind, that Jesus has in mind here. Third thing I want you to see as we take a look at these verses is there in verse 27. I want you to notice Jesus' words. Why can we trust him? Why can we have joy? He says there in verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. One of the things I really want you to see here in what Jesus promises to his disciples, what he promises to you is the love of the Father. Jesus here describes this newfound access and intimacy that disciples of Jesus can have with God the Father, with a holy God in heaven. And that all of us can know that love that access and that intimacy with the Holy God. Now, the only reason we can experience that love, that we can know that love, is because Jesus knows he's about to lay down his life, that he's about to die on a cross so that you and I might live. And before we go any further in this passage, I want to pause and and simply ask you, do you know the love of God? Do you know that you are eternally loved by a holy God? Do you know that your sins have been forgiven, that you are reconciled and redeemed, not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus has done? And if you don't know that love, if you don't know that forgiveness, if you don't know that grace and mercy, I want to encourage you right where you are to put your faith in Jesus, to trust in him, to believe that he has taken away your sins as far as the east is from the west that you're loved. And like I said earlier, there are times when as a parent, you simply can't explain all of the details to your kids and you just have to ask them to trust you. But trust is built on a history of love. Kids won't trust you if they know that you don't love them. And here Jesus reminds us that we're loved so we can trust him. 
And as we take a look at number three on your outline, as Jesus has seen the confusion of his disciples as he has now addressed and provided a little clarification for them, the third thing I want us to see together this morning is that he calls his disciples to have some courage. Some courage. Grab your Bibles and let me read for you John chapter 16. Look at number three on your outline at verses 29 and 30 to begin. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. So after hearing Jesus' words, after he gives them this clarification over what they're about to endure, Jesus' disciples, they really come to two significant conclusions here. I want you to notice the two major things that Jesus' disciples understand there in verse 30. First they say to Jesus, we know that you know all things. After hearing Jesus' words, his disciples reach the conclusion that Jesus is omniscient, that he knows all things. And secondly, they say there at the end of verse 30, by this we believe that you came from God. His disciples rightly understand that Jesus is omniscient. They rightly understand that he is divine, that he knows all things and that he came from the Father. The disciples reach some remarkable conclusions here. But even still, they don't get the full picture. They don't quite understand everything that there is to know or everything that's about to happen. So notice Jesus' words back to them, beginning in verse 31. Jesus answered them and said, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. There's a couple things that I want you to notice here in Jesus' words back to his disciples. He acknowledges that they really don't fully understand everything Jesus is saying. And in fact, he predicts that they will indeed abandon him, that they will be scattered. He says here, An hour is coming and has already come. And again, we're just moments away now from there in the garden when Jesus will be betrayed even by his own disciples. They will scatter. They will flee in terror. And Jesus knows it. And he tells them. This, by the way, is a fulfillment of prophecy from the book of Zechariah. And in just a few short hours, the disciples will run in every direction, leaving Jesus alone. But the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus, even in that moment, really isn't alone. And he says there to his disciples at the end of verse 32, I am not alone because the Father is with me. The Father is with him even in his abandonment by the disciples. The big verse I want us to look at is verse 33. Jesus kind of tying it all together. One of his final words to his disciples there before his arrest and crucifixion. 
Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. There's four really big statements that I want us to look at here in verse 33. The first one is this. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, notice, so that in me you may have peace. Now the word for peace here uh, really reflects the Hebrew idea of shalom. And it means a lot more than just peace or good feelings that we often think that word peace means. But in the Hebrew mindset, that word peace really describes this inner twin tranquility, this inner sense that everything is exactly how it's supposed to be. It describes a life lived in proper, design, with, in proper alignment with the design of God. Everything exactly as it's supposed to be. And Jesus says to his disciples, notice, in me, you may have peace. The second thing Jesus says is, in the world, you have tribulation. In me, you have peace, but in world, you're going to have problems. The word for tribulation here really describes the persecutions that the disciples are going to face. That After the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, these men, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, uh, the, the words of Jesus literally come true for them, and they are all persecuted because of their faith. As they follow Jesus in a fallen world, they face tribulation. They face problems. They face persecution. In me, Jesus says, you have peace. In the world, you're gonna have problems. But the third thing Jesus says here in verse 33 is take courage. In me, you have peace. In the world, you're going to have persecutions. But take courage. Take courage. The other night, I was putting Judah to bed. And, you know, he's five. He's a five-year-old boy. So for him, the world is good guys and bad guys. And as I was putting Judah to bed the other night, uh, for some reason, he asked me the question. He said, Dad, uh, what will you do if a bad guy breaks into the house? I said, Judah, if a bad guy breaks into the house, I'm going to do everything I can to protect you. And you got to understand that Judah, as a five-year-old boy, in in his mind, I'm right up there with Superman and the Hulk, right? So he thinks I can pretty much do anything. So when I told him, I said, Judah, if a bad guy breaks into the house, I'm going to do everything I can to protect you. He said back to me, he said, Dad, how are you so brave? Don't you get scared? Dad, how are you so brave? Don't you get scared? And I said to him, I said, Judah, being brave doesn't mean you don't get scared. But being brave means you do the right thing even when you are scared. Being brave doesn't mean you don't get scared. Being brave or taking courage means you do the right thing even when you are scared. That's exactly what that word there, take courage, means. It means to be firm or resolute in the face of danger. 
Jesus says to his disciples, listen, in me you have peace. In the world you're going to have persecutions, but I want you to take courage. I want you to remain firm and resolute in the face of danger. Even when you're scared, I want you to be brave, not because you're Superman or the Hulk, but because, notice the fourth thing Jesus says here, because I have overcome the world. In me, you have peace. In the world, you're going to have problems. But I want you to take courage because I, Jesus says, have overcome the world. How can we have courage following Jesus in a fallen world that hates us because it hated Jesus? Because he overcame the world. The word for overcame here is a military term and it's used to describe victory in warfare. You could translate this word overcome as the word conquered. And we know now this side of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that the battle has been won. So take courage because he's overcome the world. This is a bold statement, by the way. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. That's a bold statement. Unless, of course, you're the divine son of God who knows that you're about to lay down your life for the sins of the world, be resurrected back to life and ascend into heaven, right? Then that's not really a bold statement. It's just a statement of reality. But the question of John chapter 16 is, are the disciples going to believe it? Are they going to believe that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus really is the victory of God? That Jesus has overcome the world. And that because of Jesus' victory, his disciples can have courage. For you and I, the question we should wrestle with as we look at John chapter 16 is, am I going to trust Jesus even when I don't understand what he's doing? Even when I'm sent out into a world that's hostile and is going to be persecuting towards believers, am I going to maintain that peace that Jesus offers? Am I going to live in the joy that he describes here in this passage? Am I going to rest in the love of God that Jesus describes? Am I going to trust an unknown future to a known God? You know, when you really look at the promises that Jesus makes here. Do we believe it? Jesus promises that you're going to face peace even in a world of tribulation. That you can have and experience the love from a holy God. And then you can experience joy even in the grief and mourning of being persecuted and living in a fallen world. Really, I think the question of John chapter 16 for you and for me is, do we really believe what the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus ultimately means for us? That because of the victory of Jesus, we can look to the cross, we can look to the death, resurrection, and ascension, and we can find the joy, the love, and the peace that Jesus offers to us. Would you pray with me? 
Uh, Father, as we really stop and consider this passage and we think about all that Jesus is promising, as we realize that we too, just like the disciples, have been sent out to follow Jesus in a fallen world, uh, God, to a certain extent, that's terrifying. Because as we see here, Jesus promised that in the world, we're going to have problems. We're going to have tribulation. And so, Father, help us by the power of your spirit that as we follow Jesus, to trust, even when we don't understand, that ultimately our grief will be turned to joy. That ultimately we can know the love of God the Father that we can enjoy an open access to him, that ultimately we can have the peace even in the midst of living in a fallen world. God, I pray that you would help me, that you would help us by the power of your spirit uh, to know this peace, to know the peace in Jesus as we wrestle with the problems in this fallen world. I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to take courage to be brave even when we're scared because we trust and we know that ultimately Jesus has overcome the world. God, I pray for all of us. I pray for our church that as you send us to be on mission, to share this message, to share the good news of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, I pray that you would empower us, you would equip us, you would encourage us to give hope, to give the gospel, to give the joy, the love, and the peace that we find only in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.